0: Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision-makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor. And this week we'll be talking about Turkish foreign policy, Turkey's president Recep Tayyip Erdogan, and the Kurdish question in Turkey and Syria with Al-Monitor columnist and scholar Cengiz Kandar, who has written a new book, Turkey's Mission Impossible, War and Peace with the Kurds. My conversation with Cengiz Kandar and more after this short break.
1: President Trump defined the U.S. policy as America first. I think for Erdogan, it is Turkey first. And given the knowledge that we have on Mr. Erdogan, that um, his pragmatism, he uh, recognized no boundaries, he wouldn't opt either for the United States or Russia. So uh, he will try to manage both as much he sees opportune to Turkey's or his own personal interests.
0: That was Cengiz Kandar, and we will be getting to my full interview with him in just a moment. Last week, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan said that in three years, Turkey will be, in Erdogan's words, an unstoppable power in the region. That's a bold statement, even for Erdogan, who regularly makes bold statements. Erdogan combines an unusual mix of pan-Islamic and Turkish nationalism, ambition and ideology, along with a highly personalized approach to policymaking. Erdogan also sees opportunity in crisis, whether it be the COVID-19 pandemic or the wars in Libya and Syria. And this approach has a way of beating other assertive moves, such as reclaiming this week the Hagia Sophia as a mosque. Erdogan also displays a lack of both introspection and careful strategic planning. And when you put this all together, It has led him to decisions adding up to the quagmire he faces in Syria, and relatedly, the setbacks in his approach to the Kurdish question over the past decade. To help us understand all of this and more, I am now pleased to welcome our guest Cengiz Kandar, El Monitor columnist and distinguished visiting scholar at the Stockholm University Institute for Turkish Studies. Cengiz is not only the doyen of the Turkish press corps on the Kurdish issue, He has been a participant observer on the Kurdish matter for decades. He advised former President Turkan Ozol. He has participated in the most sensitive track two discussions, and in addition to his reporting and analysis, he is engaged in quiet conversations with all of the key Turkish, Iraqi, Syrian, and Kurdish leaders, whether it be President Erdogan, who he knows, Ahmed Devoktoglu, the former foreign minister of Turkey, PKK leader Abdullah Ocalan, Kurdistan Dem- Democratic Party leader Masoud Barzani, former Iraqi president and PUK leader Jalal talabani you name it, the list could go on. And he's written all about this in his new book, his new important book, Turkey's Mission Impossible, War and Peace with the Kurds. It's an essential work of scholarship on the topic, and we are going to discuss it now. Cengiz, welcome to On the Middle East. It's a pleasure to be with you, Andrew. Pleasure to have you. Let's get right into it, and the topic that's in the news this week There was a decision by a Turkish court, which has backed President Erdogan's desire to press ahead with converting the Hagia Sophia Museum back into a mosque. Now, you write this week for Al-Monitor that, and I'm quoting your article, the reconversion of the Hagia Sophia into a mosque serves as if an identity card for the political Islamists and Muslim nationalists, unquote, and that Erdogan's move needs to be seen in an even Broader light—that is, you say, his forceful claim for the global leadership of Muslims. What do you mean by that? And help us put that in context.
1: Actually, the the court decision is is a farce because there is no rule of law in Turkey, and the, the judiciary is not independent at all. And nobody in Turkey refers to reconversion of Hagia Sophia as the verdict of the administrative. The high Court. Everything is perceived and understood rightly that it is purely Tayyip Erdogan's decision to project himself. The interpretation of why he did it and why he did it now at this juncture varies. And nevertheless, common law was denominated that this is an act of Erdogan, that the reconversion of Hagia Sophia into a mosque in order to project himself as the leader of the Muslim community all over the world, also to consolidate his image and power within Turkey. As much as I can read and see, and as much I know him personally also, and try to read his mind, I can understand that given the the latest uh, Turkish moves in the region, in the Middle Eastern and Mediterranean and the North African geopolitical stage, where Erdogan is in an acute struggle of leadership of the Sunni Muslim world, primarily, that pits him against, and Turkey of course, against uh, Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, and United Arab Emirates as the stakeholders in the struggle, and which reflects itself, as a matter of fact, in Libya, more than anywhere else recently. So, the, he needs to score points in this perennial struggle that he is after uh, to project himself as the leader of the uh, Muslim Ummah, Muslim world, against uh, the traditional uh, Sunni power centers. So, the, the decision, kind of uh, as I qualified it, Turkish reconquista, as if uh, just to evoke uh, the memories of what had happened in, in Spain as if it's a civilizational action to glorify Muslims against Christendom, against the non-Muslim world, to consolidate his image. So he has taken this move. If Turkey would not be outstretched in East Mediterranean, in North Africa, in different corners of the Middle East, stretching from the the borders of Iran and Iraq all the way up to Northern Syria, I wouldn't uh, imagine that Turkey or, or uh, Erdogan would undertake such a step because it's not only a matter of confronting the sentiments of the, the Christian and the Western world and also Israel, of course, because uh, in his victory speech, if I would call it as such, he also mentioned the resurrection of the Hagia Sophia is a step uh, forward uh, on the path to liberate the Dome of the Rock. Uh, which, of course, uh, addresses itself to the core of the Middle East problem, to the Palestinian problem, and therefore confronting Israel as well. But this doesn't make us to divert from the gist of the issue. Less Islamic, but more Turkish nations, as, as much as I see, uh, core of the core and the ideology of the Erdogan regime in Turkey nowadays.
0: You... Uh spent a lot of time with president erdoğan you write about this uh, in your book mission impossible uh, tell tell our listeners uh, how would you describe him as a as a person a politician and a leader and what do you see as his legacy or his legacy as it's developing as contrasted to what he wants it to be you alluded to some of these issues in your previous answer about leadership uh, in the muslim world but Talk about Erdogan, the man, as you've known him, and his trajectory as a leader in Turkey.
1: He is definitely a larger-than-life figure, coming from very, very modest, humble backgrounds, son of a worker, and who also constructed his life in his early youth as a laborer, then small shopkeeper, a businessman, and so on, and coming from the very modest backgrounds, coming from the working class districts downtrodden areas of Istanbul. He climbed up the ladder of power in Turkey, very institutionalized compared um, to the other countries in the region, uh, whether it be the Middle East or the Balkans, uh, a very institutionalized country, which has the legacy of an empire, the Ottoman Empire, and a staunchly secularist uh, country uh, with established political institutions, political parties, and this gentleman coming from such a uh, modest background uh, with humble origins, with angry religious upbringing and pushing himself into the Turkish ruling elite, then hijacking, in a sense, albeit imperfect Turkish democracy into a one-man autocracy, tells a lot about uh, who Erdogan is. He is a person to be reckoned with, and most probably the, the sound assessment, who he was, clairvoyant appraisal, what role he played in history could only be done perhaps after some decades. But just uh, the saying that uh, the, the sound, sober and accurate analysis of him needs some decades uh, ahead of us. Also uh, by itself suggests that he is a larger than life figure and simultaneously a very enigmatic personality for such a, a person in terms of his background and he's no intellectual at all but um, for sure a very astute political animal very shrewd politician to be compared with the founder of the republic of turkey the great name of turkish history Kemal Atotik, you could match his name with him in terms of political Shrewdness is a success story, but his success story may, for many people, that it may end up for catastrophic consequences for the country that he is ruling now.
0: Changi's in your book, you describe a, a fascinating conversation you had with Erdogan in March 2011, just after the Syrian uprising began, in which he talked about his and his wife's friendship with President Bashar and and his wife. Uh, but in that conversation, Erdogan also foreshadowed some of what was to come with regard to Turkey's policy in Syria. Uh, tell us about that conversation and how you see his thinking is, is played out in Syria.
1: It was just the conflict in Syria was just two weeks old. So, uh, so it was it's in embryonic stages. So it was. we were on the way back to Turkey from Erbil, from a state visit to Iraq and Iraqi Kurdistan. And during the flight, I had asked about what he thinks what might happen in Syria, because it will be a difficult situation for him. As you had just reminded me in the question that he had very close family relationship and personal rapport with the president of Syria. But at the same time, he was trying to project himself as the spokesperson of the downtrodden of the Middle East, Palestinians and the rest. And, uh, and after the Arab Spring, when the Sunni masses in Iraq, then in Libya, Libya it started first in Tunisia, then mainly in Egypt, uh, which expanded to Libya. Do The Sunni masses mostly uh, led or driven by Muslim Brotherhood was changing the the political map of the Middle East, which was propelling him to assert uh, himself in a leadership position over this Sunni world with the invisible Muslim Brotherhood backbone. So when I asked about uh, what he thinks of Syria, knowing his pro-Muslim Brotherhood tendencies, being aware of it, I asked how he would manage the future between his close, very close personal friend Bashar al-Assad and the demands of the uh, Syrian street, which the Turkish Sunni Muslim constituency of himself would be uh, sympathetic. So the response uh, he gave to me uh, suggested to me that he was not unprepared at all what to see in Syria. He was uh, mostly uneasy that the developments in Syria uh, could end up in a huge refugee flow into Syria. And given the experience of uh, Iraq in the aftermath of the Gulf War in 1991, he said that uh, we can't afford to have that much refugee flow. But he also underlined that uh, when it comes to Syria, we have to take into consideration, he gave names. Uh, He said Aleppo, Konoz, Hattai the Turkish province of Hatay adjacent to it, and also uh, Kamishli is not only Kamishli, meaning the Kurdish inhabited largest town of northeastern Syria, with a bearing upon turkish Kurdish question. And therefore, he deduced in his response to me that, he said, we cannot uh, wait this refugee flow and act as bystanders to the conflict, to the evolution of the conflict in Syria, but we have to have our defense lines not within the territory of Turkey, but we have to establish them within the territory of Syria. So it kind of uh, heralded Turkish preparation to get heavily involved with the the Syrian imbroglio, which became the case uh, later on, and also the the interventionist uh, tendencies in the minds of Turkey. But some um, expectations, predictions rather than expectations. The predictions of himself uh, came true in the sense that there had been a huge refugee flow into Turkey, much more than he had anticipated, because also in the book that I discuss, given my interviews, my my conversations with the Turkish officials at the time, that the predictions of the Turkish officials, including Tayyip Erdogan, was that Turkey... It can not absorb more than 500,000 Syrian refugees. So Turkey will be ready to host about 500,000 refugees. If uh, figures would be over that, Turkey might step into Syria, as Tai Erdogan told me to establish the first defense lines to prevent it. but now Turkey has um, 3.6 million uh, rather uh, with the unregistered ones, around 4 million Syrian refugees within Turkey, uh, creating a big pressure uh, in Europe and and, uh, shaping up the relationship of domestic policies of many EU member countries, as well as uh, the bilateral relations of each one of them with Turkey and uh, the European Union with Turkey in general.
0: Cengiz, uh, you describe the Turkish intervention and uh, occupation of northeast Syria as a a quagmire, as Turkey's uh, Vietnam or Afghanistan, and uh, also are critical of his aspirations for a safe zone there, which Erdogan had said was to resettle some of these 3.6 million refugees. Now, Erdogan has been nothing but consistent in terms of his uh, stated objectives uh, for Syria and the safe zone. In addition to the resettlement of refugees, it's about eliminating what he terms the terrorist threat from the Syrian Kurdish armed group, the People's Protection Units, the YPG, which uh, he says is linked to the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK. So how does Turkey get out of this quagmire? And what's Erdogan's plan at this point or do you think he has a plan
1: it's such a question that i am not sure whether uh, erdogan has the answer to it it's a very interesting episode of history that we are we have been witnessing right now that when turkey stepped in uh, to syria which i heard from uh, the, the former president Gül, that turkey had no exit plan for that so he was critical of that and I had told him in, in our conversation that, um, Mr. President, um, the, are you away what you are telling to me? He said, what? I'm, of course, aware." he said, what I'm telling to you, that we didn't have an exit plan. I have a plan B. I said, but by saying this, you are telling to me that you don't have a plan A also, because um, in order to have a plan, plan B, an exit plan, you have to have a plan. If it doesn't work, then you just implement or try to implement the." plan B. If you don't have uh, plan A, you can't have plan B. Or vice versa, if you don't have any B plan, then you don't have any A plan. So I was being, of course, sarcastic to him. But I think it carries a grain of truth, what I was telling to him at that day, uh, some four years before today, uh, that Turkey, when it involved itself in, in Syria, it was much more for purposes of trying to see the regime in Damascus would be overthrown within six, seven months. So it was an immature expectation. Therefore, Turkey hosted the Syrian uh, opposition for that, and and they didn't come up true. Then by some developments, Turkey were deprived to play a role in Syria. Then uh, the Turkish uh, outlook vis-à-vis the the developments in Syria has changed, uh, and it became uh, mostly defensive. They were very much um, uneasy about uh, the emergence of a Kurdish entity adjacent to Turkey's border. So they had they in mind to prevent it, whatever the cost. And that's how the contradictions between Turkey and the United States appeared over the no- northeastern battleground of Syria. And also which led uh, Turkey to a rapprochement with uh, Russia which uh, in turn led Turkey to move into northwestern Syria, into Afrin, and then to Astana and to Sochi. uh, This uh, partnership that Turkey established uh, with Russia and and Iran at a secondary level created a Turkish military presence in northwestern part of Syria, So, uh, while uh, creating wedges in the NATO security system. And uh, creating problems with, uh, between uh, two allies, uh, Turkey and the United States. So partnership with Russia uh, prejudiced uh, the alliance with the United States, and it was merely because of the way Turkey perceived of the emergence of a Kurdish entity with implica- in Syria, with implications over the Kurds living on the next at the next door in Turkey. However, as we have seen in uh, 2019, October, about nine months from today, when Turkey entered into northeastern Syria, where it is defined as east of Euphrates, it has been done with the connivance and cooperation of uh, President Trump. So in northwestern uh, Syria, Turkey acted with Russia and cooperated with Russia and now it is is trying to cooperate with the United States in the northeastern part of Syria. So it, it, it is a very messy, complicated, and complex uh, political option that Turkey has been facing. And this doesn't tell us that it is a well-studied and well-planned uh, foreign policy. It just emerged on the road. It's kind of uh, playing tennis. You just hit the ball uh, and send the ball uh, over the net to the other side when uh, it was sent to you. So we cannot speak of uh, a Turkish grand plan, whether it's in Syria or in Libya, but altogether uh, there is kind of a strategic mind uh, behind uh, Turkish actions all over the world because we see Turkey in the Gulf, having a military facility in Qatar, also uh, in uh, Somalia, and also now it's, trying to stretch its tentacles all the way to Yemen it's the former uh, ottoman territory of course Yemen and now confronting france in east mediterranean and very active element in the libyan equation so turkey has become more or less a global player now
0: chenkis as you you talk about turkey's relationship with the with the us and russia do you believe that erdogan at some point will either tilt decisively one way or the other? Or will he decide uh, to continue to try to keep both in play to further his and Turkish objectives?
1: I would ask if it's a quiz question B. As um, uh, President Trump defined uh, the U.S. policy as America first, I think for Erdogan it is Turkey first. And given um, the the knowledge that we have on Mr. Erdogan, that um, his pragmatism, is recognized no boundaries, he wouldn't opt either for the United States or Russia. He will try to manage both as much um, he sees opportune to Turkey's or his own personal interests.
0: Cengiz, the Turkish campaign to establish a security corridor on its southern border has also included increased attacks on PKK strongholds in Iraqi Kurdistan. Now, this is in itself nothing new. These have happened periodically over over decades that Turkish forces have gone into Iraq to hit the PKK. But the intensity of the attacks um, seem more at this point. And the uh, Iraqi and Kurdistan regional governments have protested. But Iraq, of course, has other distractions at this time, given the economic and COVID-19 crises and other things. Why is it so hard for uh, Turkey to dislodge the PKK from the Kendall Mountains in Iraq? And you've been there uh, and interviewed uh, PKK leaders there.
1: Well, one is topography. The other is PKK is not an organization in the sense that a group of um, the people the arms. It is huge, big Movement with branches all over from Iran to Syria, in Iraq itself, more than anywhere else in Turkey. So, PKK is for official um, the parlance in Turkey, it's terrorism or terrorist organization. But to be honest, it is the name of the Kurdish insurgency. So, the, it is not uh, easy to quell an insurgency which has deep roots, uh, historical roots. Geographical roots and sociological roots. And if we add the topography of the area, the North, uh, Kurdistan of Iraq, the northern Iraq, it's, it's, it's not a matter of weeks or so that the might of the Turkish military power, if it is introduced, it will end the PKK. This was exercised since more than 30, 40 years and it didn't give any, any uh, satisfying results. Although nowadays, Turkey inflicted a lot of damage to the, the PKK's military infrastructure, again, to be honest. Yet, if uh, one thinks that there is a military solution uh, to end this problem, uh, he or she has to wait for a very long time. What is interesting in the Turkey's actions regarding your question um, of the Turkish military action in the northern part of Iraq against the PKK? strongholds or bases there, the Turkey is gradually establishing a kind of a cordon or a corridor stretching out from the Iraq-Iran border about 20 to 40 kilometers deep uh, to the south in in the territory of Iraqi kurdistan from the Turkish frontier. 180 kilometers wide, 20 40 kilometers deep. And if you uh, move into Syria, the same vision is in the minds of Turkey to establish a corridor. It's kind of a safe zone, which uh, they aim to have for 400 kilometers at length, wide and uh, 30 kilometers wide. And almost 200 kilometers of it is achieved in terms of its width, and uh, 30 kilometers in uh, depth. Therefore, um, it's kind of a creation of, its effectively moving Turkey's southern frontiers, 30 kilometers, or 40 kilometers in some places, um, away from the uh, formal existing uh, frontier, uh, to establish a kind of a, a buffer zone, and uh, to project power uh, in the future, against Baghdad, against Damascus, and against many other capitals involved in shaping up uh, the future of the Middle East. So the Kurdish problem and the claim to fight against uh, PKK terrorism give Turkey also an opportunity to project itself as a regional power to contest the geopolitical uh, desires because when Turkey and if Turkey uh, can be able to establish and consolidate this uh, buffer zone all the way from the Iran-Iraq border to Mediterranean. It will deprive uh, Iran to encircle Turkey from the south uh, to reach Mediterranean. And uh, so this vision also uh, gives uh, an area of maneuver uh, to Turkey when it talks behind the curtains with the American and uh, European officials and also with the Russian officials.
0: Cengiz, uh, I've. I feel we're just getting started. There's so much to discuss with you about the the Curtis question and about your book, Mission Impossible. I want to thank you for your interview today, for your many contributions to El Monitor over the years, and congratulations on Mission Impossible. I thoroughly enjoyed it, learned so much from it. Uh, It's required reading. I say this to our listeners. It really is required reading for anyone interested in the Curtis question from a key participant observer in the issue over the years. So Chengiz, thank you again for being with us today. I thank you. We'll be right back with a few takeaways from my interview with Chengiz Kandark and some closing remarks after this short break.
2: I'm Ben Kaspit, Al-Monitor, veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, Two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, talk to decision makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here. On Israel, Al monitor.
0: Welcome back to On the Middle East. Let me share with you three takeaways from my conversation today with Chengiz Kandar. First, that the scope of Erdogan's ambition is something to behold, not just in establishing a security corridor on Turkey's borders with Iraq and Syria, not just in North Africa, where he feels he's playing a winning hand in Libya, but in the Muslim world by reclaiming the Hagia Sophia as a mosque. Second, that this ambition may be rooted in a powerful pan-Islamic ideology and Turkish nationalist vision, but it's not really implemented in any coherent or strategic way. Chengiz compared it to a tennis match, Erdogan hitting the ball and playing the return. Third, I found Chengiz's answer to my question about why it has been so hard to eliminate the threat from the PKK in northern Iraq and elsewhere, despite a relentless Turkish military campaign. His answer was concise and incisive, if perhaps controversial in Turkey and elsewhere in the region. Chengiz said that the PKK, while it is designated a terrorist group in Turkey and in the US and elsewhere, it is nonetheless a movement and, to quote Chengiz, the name of the Kurdish insurgency. And it is not easy to quell an insurgency which has such deep roots. I encourage you all to read Chengiz Kandar's new book and to read his columns at El Monitor. Thank you all for listening to On the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti. I'll be back next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel with Ben Caspit at your favorite podcast platform.